My name is Robert Mitchell. I've been the lead pastor of a local church here in Syracuse, New York for about a decade now, and I have a secret. It was New Year's Eve. It was about two hours away from my hometown. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't recognized, and I pulled into this dive bar in a little town that I, I won't name, and I wasn't there to proselytize. <laughs> it had been nearly a year since I lost Marie and the kids. It was shortly after midnight that year, uh, last January 1st, right after the New Year's celebrations had concluded, and, uh, we were about an hour away from home, and I remember we had stopped to get gas, and you know, you hear all these warnings about being careful, being on the road after midnight and New Year's, and I just think, like anyone else, like you, I'd imagine, we think those kinds of warnings need to be heeded by other less careful drivers somehow where you are immune to the dangers of reckless human behavior. When we pulled up to the to the pump, for whatever reason, my card wasn't being read by the terminal like it happens sometimes, and I thought, okay, you know, I'll run in and pay, and I walked in and thought, you know, everybody might appreciate a little midnight snack here for the ride home. I'll get us some chips and couple of drinks. It took me maybe an extra 90 seconds. And that's all it took. I remember I got a can of uh, LaCroix, LaCroix. I, I don't know how the kids say it. My son, um, Micah, had been trying to get me to like this stuff and learn how to pronounce it for a year after his freshman year of college. And this was apparently the thing that all the kids drank, so he really, really wanted me to like it, so I figured I'd give it one more go. I got my daughter, Noelle, one of those iced bottled coffees you can get. She was addicted to that stuff, even though she was only a junior in high school, and I kept telling her, you don't know what's coming in college. And then I got my wife, Marie, a cherry Coke. It was her cheat day favorite soda. So I figured, you know, one more before the health craze of the new year started. I had paid for the drinks and the snacks, and I had just gotten to the door, and I looked up, and I saw it all unfolding slowly in one way, but too quick for anybody to do anything about it. A large truck had started to swerve off of the road. We were in the middle of the country at night. It was a little slippery from some melted snow. It really didn't make any difference. Uh, the guy driving the rather big truck, blood alcohol level was way too high. And I saw him starting to swerve off of the road and his truck was careening over the sidewalk, the walkway. 
and the headlights were headed straight for our van. I looked at our van and I saw the kids' phone lights lighten up. They were looking at those and Marie was in the front seat with her head back and her eyes closed. They never saw it coming, but I did. The only thing I can remember is that initial violent impact and then my memory goes blank. Almost mercifully, I think. And my next memory is sitting in my bed the next afternoon, awaiting a phone call from the police to go down to the station and try and ID my family and detail the truck from memory for the police report. I took two months off from preaching, as if that was somehow enough time to cope. Cope with the loss of my two nearly grown children and my wife of nearly 25 years, who I loved very dearly. It took me even longer to get behind the wheel of a car. That took me six months, and that's when it all started. You know, you'd think since alcohol was a primary ingredient in the concoction that so cruelly killed my family, I would have kept my distance from it. But no. It started off at home, really. I drank a couple beers just to numb the pain. And, and I don't come from a family of drinkers. I barely drank in my life. Next thing I know, every Friday I'm driving you know, an hour, now two hours away. I didn't want anybody to recognize me, but I just had to get away and I had to stop the pain. But my real secret wasn't even the drinking. I thought it was. For a few months I really thought, okay, I'll stop this and that'll be the end of a short period of, you know, bad judgment, but I was hiding from my own secret. My real secret was that my faith had been rocked to the core for the first time in my life. And I thought if I could just stay drunk, I wouldn't have to confront my waning belief, what that could mean and do to my church family, to me. And I learned I wasn't alone. After you go from bar to bar every Friday, you notice patterns in people. Maybe it's pastor in me or the psychology minor, but there's a lot of pain out there. A lot of anger, a lot of sadness, but it all amounts to just worlds of pain. In seminary, we called it the problem of pain. Really, it's the problem of evil. It's not exactly like it sounds. It's the idea of posing a cosmological or theological question. If God is all-powerful and all-good, how can pain and evil exist when he could just put an end to it at any time that he wants? It turns out there's actually really good answers to that question. Answers I could give you about God's holiness and him not being the author of pain, really that's on us, and that he does have a plan to erase all the pain. But 
<laughs> it's like going to the doctor for a vaccine when you've got a virus. You can treat symptoms, you can try and numb the pain, but it's not what you want. It's, it's symptomatic. The only medication I could find for this virus of the soul was drinking. Beer, liquor, just like any other alcoholic will tell you, it starts so simply and then it's not so simple soon enough. One of the major benefits of my new habit was talking to so many people. It helped to be able to bury your soul. I mean, I'm sure the <laughs> the dysfunction of the frontal lobes didn't hurt, but just hearing other people tell their stories, being able to tell mine, not all of it, of course, but the part I thought about the most. I try to talk to God, but <laughs> when you can't see him there at the bar with you, it's not quite the same. And I'd begun to wonder if I was talking to anybody or if anybody had ever listened to me when I prayed. After a while, it changed from every Friday to every few days and then every other day, but the process was the same. I would basically pick a random spot that I drew a circle of a 100 to 200 mile radius away from Syracuse and would just point and go there. It was New Year's Eve, one year to the day, and I remember finding this one, and I had never noticed it before, this little town. I remember I saw the first bar was over the crest of this hill as you approached the bridge. It was down by the river banks. Saw quite a few cars outside, so I figured, why not? It's as good a bar as any. It was called Spirits, which I thought was clever. When I got out of my car, I noticed the other cars there had quite a bit of snow on them, had been there for a while. Then when I got to the door, I just kind of took a look around from there. I could see tables on the left, the bar sort of just to, in front of me, jukebox on the back wall opposite the door, and then a vintage-style cash register on the right. When I walked in, there was about 20 people in there, which I thought was a little strange for New Year's Eve, you'd think it would be packed, but the town was tiny, so maybe 20 people was big numbers for them. It was a pretty standard bar other than that, except that they were noticeably missing a TV. You could imagine my time this past six months or so around every bar that I could think of. TVs were everywhere. You could never hear yourself think, let alone speak. But I guess that wasn't really the idea, was it? Regardless, I came in and I did what I usually do, sat down and ordered my usual, asked the bartender. There was a hotel within walking distance. He told me about one. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, it's just around the corner. I went to reach into my pocket where my phone usually was to call and I, I realized I, I didn't have it. So as I started to get up, he must have noticed I was looking for it, and he offered to actually book the hotel for me. He just asked me for my name, and he said he'd take care of it, make sure I got a room tonight. So I went about 
starting the process of drinking myself into an oblivion, try and forget what day it was. About my third drink in, a gentleman came and sat down with me, tall guy. I think he must have been there when I walked in. Maybe he was just in the restroom. He was wearing dark slacks and a black and red plaid shirt. Had dark thinning hair, but a, a strong build. And I noticed he was walking right up to me and I realized I may have set my stuff on his seat. So I apologized, I moved it. And he said it was quite all right. He took a seat close to me and we started talking. His name was Frank. Nice guy. Right about the time he sat down, though, I was getting ready to start into my fourth drink, so I went ahead and ordered it. I remember he made a comment. He said, that's uh, quite a strong drink you've got there. Hope you don't plan on driving anywhere tonight. I knew he meant nothing by it, but the alcohol was already starting to take over. I was already emotional, especially considering why I was there. So it kind of frustrated me a bit, and I kind of sharply said, of course not. Probably looked like I had daggers coming out of my eyes too. But he said he didn't mean any offense by it. He just seen too many good people make one mistake too many. I shook my head and I apologized for being so defensive. I told him it had just been a long week. <laughs> a really a long year. He said he could relate said he had fallen on hard times. His little boy had gotten sick almost a year ago. About the same time, he had to go on disability for a work injury, and his wife had to pick up the slack and had two jobs. And he was having a hard time finding a job even after recovery because every company in the small town was afraid he would sue them. He said he loved them both very dearly, and he pulled out his wallet, showed me a picture. It was faded and old almost waterlogged, but you could tell him and his wife and his son, they just looked happy. He told me the picture was taken before everything fell apart. That's why he liked to keep it with him. A reminder of something to work towards. Happier days. Days gone by, as the song said. I asked him what he meant by the song. He said, Old Lang Syne, of course. Time's gone by. It's not exactly a literal translation, but paraphrasing the German, that's what it means. I never thought about that. I never had heard the interpretation of the song. I just remember hearing it every year. It's funny, as he talked, my instinct is always to go into pastor mode, to listen, yes, but then to guide, to give advice, to counsel. I fought back that urge. If I learned anything after all these people and hearing all their stories, it's just sometimes talking is pointless. It's the vaccine for the virus. Listening is really part of the healing process. So I did. I listened. And besides that, who's gonna take the advice of an alcoholic preacher two hours away from his congregation because he's so afraid to face the fact that he's been lying to them for almost a year now. I heard him say, what about you? I said, what? He said, do you have any family? 
I said, oh, yeah. And I remember I pulled out my wallet and I opened it up. And right in the front was a picture of my family and I. We had taken it that Christmas, the Christmas right before everything had happened. It was all of us in front of our Christmas tree. My mother-in-law had been staying with us for health reasons and she took the picture. Her and I hadn't spoken much since the funerals. It had been so long since anybody had asked me to look and I hadn't thought to open it myself. And it just hit me. All in one moment just hit me. And I couldn't stop crying. I started weeping. Eventually, between my sobs, I apologized. And he was really a good listener. <laughs> he didn't overreact. He didn't try to offer advice. He just listened. After a few minutes of silence, when I finally finished, uh, he said that when his mother had gotten sick toward the end of her life, he started going to church again, and that helped. I laughed, <laughs> and I realized in hindsight how disrespectful that could have seemed to Frank. And before I knew it, I had to explain myself out of the situation, and I was admitting to this perfect stranger my lie. It felt good to admit it to somebody. <laughs> it was like relieving some inverse guilt for lying to my congregation for so long. I told him I was really struggling with whether I believed in any of that anymore. That maybe my faith my whole time was actually just comfortable and the story I told myself being with my family. He was silent for a minute and then he reached into the breast pocket of his jacket that had been drooped next to him. He pulled out a small green faux leather Bible. A little odd to most, I'd imagine, but this kind of cover was really common, especially back in the old days. He laid it in front of me and motioned me to flip through it. It was full of notes, and I saw so many familiar passages circled, so many I'd preached on even recently. 1 John 1, 7 to 9, Romans 7, 15, Hebrews 13, 2. It was strange, though, seeing him in a stranger's Bible. You know, when you're a pastor, you get so caught up in your own conversations with God, your own study of the Bible, that it's easy to turn your own Bible into a, a notepad or a lecture book. Mine had become so cold and distant. Well, that's not quite fair. I think maybe it was I who got cold and distant from it. But seeing these words again in the simple little faux leather bound version of it, it, I'll admit even in the midst of my doubt, it started to put a small pinprick into my numbness. After letting me page through it a bit, he told me that his father was a preacher, that his whole life was surrounded by the church, by scripture, and 
At one point he had walked away, but he tried to come back in the last few years. Thought he found meaning in it all again. He looked at me for a minute more and then slowly pulled it back in front of him on the bar top. And then he told me that he had pulled this Bible from his father's jacket and he got it from him when he found him in his childhood home. He had hung himself in their closet. He was 59 years old. I didn't really know what to say. I felt my eyes widen a bit. I tried not to visibly react strongly, at least. Frank wasn't even looking at me, though. He was kind of staring at the Bible. It was a look I recognized. So familiar to me. Rewinding, reliving that moment over and over. And my heart broke for him in that moment. But his gaze lifted back to me after he took a breath and he asked me how many people were in my congregation. I told him and it seemed to actually be a pretty close match to what his father's size were. And we started talking church demographics and what it was like to grow up in them. And the more he heard about my church, every positive thing that I had to say sort of it was a small dagger in my heart. It was a reminder of how blessed I really was to have the kind of church family I did. So supportive, but what if they knew? Any negative little thing I had to say, I just felt responsible for because I felt like it was directly the result of this double lifestyle of mine. Pastors aren't supposed to be perfect. We both knew that, but they're supposed to have integrity. After we talked for a bit, he said he saw a lot of his father in me. And said it was the only reason he felt comfortable telling me what he did. He didn't really tell many people that. He paused and he looked at me and he said something I didn't really expect. He said, tell them. I could have asked him to repeat himself, but I knew exactly what he meant. I shook my head and I just said, I can't, I can't do that. What kind of hypocrite would they see me as if I did? And then he said, well, the lesser kind than you are now. It was a gentle thing. He wasn't being sharp or cold. It's called an admonishment. It's a hard truth spoken in love. I just couldn't believe that I was sitting here confronting the very thing I came here to avoid with a man I'd known for less than an hour who somehow knew my whole life story now. Then he explained. He said his dad never told anybody, but he struggled with depression, serious depression and doubt mental health and because he never talked about it because nobody knew that church had no idea how to react when he did what he did he said he didn't know if I'd ever considered suicide I had many times 
But that, that wasn't really his point. His point was, because of his father's lack of transparency, the very thing he was running away from, trying to prevent from removing himself from the equation, ended up being the exact outcome. So many left the church, and unfortunately, the faith, including him, for a while anyway. He said he's blessed that God pulled him back, but so many were gone, lost forever. If only his dad had been honest, even if it meant stepping down. He said he truly believed the church would still be thriving today. Besides that, he said, I should give my soul its due time to process and to heal. Get some time alone with God. And the cynical parts of me wanted to forget this conversation happened. Find a bar, another one, drown myself and pick a poison with a stranger who cared a lot less than Frank did. But I'd be lying if I said it didn't touch me in some way. It was about 10 minutes to midnight, and even though there wasn't a TV on, I could see in my mind's eye the ball was getting ready to drop in Times Square. Frank started to get up and uh, put his jacket on. He told the bartender the drinks were on him, slipped him a bill, and he looked at me and silently pushed the little Bible back toward me. I knew what he was doing and I, I said I couldn't accept this, but he insisted. He said that he was happy that maybe it could finally do the thing it was intended to do. I was a little bit speechless uh, as he said goodbye and that he hoped I had a happier year. On his way out, he asked the bartender to queue up old Lang Syne for everybody, and they all said bye to Frank. Must have been a regular around here. And as he was walking out, he took one last look at me, smiled and winked, and walked out the door. I sat there for the few minutes that remained before midnight, seeing other familiar passages, Ecclesiastes 3.3, 1 Timothy 3.3, Acts 20.28. And with about three minutes left to midnight, I decided to walk, go up to the hotel. I wasn't quite ready to celebrate the new year, but I knew if I was walking, it would make it easier not to dwell. I'd just go to the hotel, collapse on the bed, and wake up in the new year. So I put the Bible in my jacket breast pocket, said thanks to the bartender as I walked, and I heard him say Happy New Year as the door closed behind me. I had tucked my face against the cold wind and uh, wasn't paying a lot of attention as I started walking toward my car. I was going to get my suitcase with my belongings out like I always did. And I remember I Got to the car, I unlocked it, and immediately looked for my phone. And it, it wasn't there like I 
was expecting it to be. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe I brought it in when I went in and left it there on the table. And I remember I started to walk back toward the bar and I noticed right on the little staircase leading up to the bar, there was somebody sitting there I didn't notice the first time. And I just sort of walked past them, went to the door and sort of absentmindedly tried to open it while I was keeping my eye sort of downward, looked at them. And when I pulled on the door, it didn't open. I looked at my hand, make sure I was doing this right, make sure I didn't have one drink too many. And when I looked up, the lights were all out. This wasn't right. Maybe I had gone back the wrong way, but I looked up at the sign and while there was no light coming from it anymore, there was the outline of the bar name Spirits. I looked back down, looked in the window, and I couldn't really process what was going on. There were sheets over everything. The bar, chairs, the booths. Only 60 seconds ago there was people, there was lights, there was music. The bartender was getting ready to play Old Lang Syne. That's when I started to worry. And then I remembered the person sitting on the stair and I froze a bit. Initially, I had assumed it was just maybe a patron who had drank too much and was taking a break, which seemed odd given how cold it was outside, but now I didn't know what they were doing there. I didn't know what I was doing here. I slowly backed away from the door. And I approached the stranger slowly. I said, excuse me. They didn't move. I didn't walk by them on the stairs. I took the other side and walked around. My eyes never left them. I walked around to the front of them and I said, excuse me. And I couldn't quite see their face really well, but I remember glancing around and then realizing there were no other cars in the parking lot. Mine was the only one. I slowly turned my head back. I approached the person sitting on the stairs as slowly as I've done anything in my life. And I knelt down and my breath went away for a couple of reasons. The first is that one of the things they don't tell you about being a pastor is Oftentimes you are called in when 
a parishioner's family member has died in an accident like mine did or otherwise and you are there you see a lot of dead bodies not prepared not at a funeral but newly dead and I was looking into the eyes of a dead man the second reason I couldn't audibly speak is because the dead man in front of me was Frank and it wasn't as though he had a heart attack and sat down on the stair on his way out he had been here for a while there were portions of decay and frostbite starting to take over his body I wasn't scared very often and I'll admit this shook me every waning bit of belief I had in the supernatural went away very quickly I started to back my way toward the car when I heard one more noise coming from inside of spirits I ran back up to the window in one final fit of desperation for sanity thinking I had completely lost my mind and when I peered in everything was the same as a minute ago sheets over everything dust except for one thing the jukebox was lit up and it was playing old Lang Syne as the clock rested at midnight scared in a long time but it was also the first time I had felt a presence of the supernatural in so long maybe I had gotten so far gone that God felt the need to do something somewhat dramatic to get my attention and he did I confessed everything to my church stepped down and started the process of healing and Frank was right about a couple of things while it certainly caused some shock waves initially in the end the church was better for it I was better for it I wasn't a pastor anymore but I was still a believer still a man of faith the last thing that happened is I pulled away from that bar New Year's Eve night as I sped toward the highway as fast as I could I reached in my pocket desperately to find my phone which was in fact in my jacket but it wasn't the first thing I felt 
My fingers reaching wildly grasped onto the first thing they could find, and I quickly pulled it out thinking it was my phone. And when I looked down, what I held in my hand was a small faux leather green Bible.